Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival. Hello everybody, welcome to this session. My name is Sarah MacDonald, I'm the presenter of Evenings on ABC Radio Sydney and I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to this session called Simple Pleasures and perhaps for you just coming to this session is a real simple pleasure in a very messed up, mega chaotic, confronting, confounding, crazed COVID world right now. And we all need some simple pleasures. And our panel have great insights, I think, into that for us, of finding that light and that simple pleasure in the often dark times. So our writers today, Julia Baird is an award-winning journalist. You know her as the presenter of The Drum, but she's also a historian. And her book, Phosphorescence on All Wonder and Things That Sustain You When the World Goes Dark, was launched with perfect timing, I think, for us all. It won Book of the Year and Nonfiction Book of the Year at the Abia Awards this week, and it has sustained more than 160,000 readers since. Christy Neen is the author of the best-selling memoir, Affection, uh, also a series of great novels and a poetry collection called Eating My Grandmother. An Uncertain Grace was shortlisted for several awards, including the Stella Prize. And her book, The Three Burials of Lottie Neen, is a quest for... Oh, you've got it. Well done. <laughs> Understanding... <laughs> Fabulous, thank you. Yes, you can all hold up your own books. Uh, it's a real quest for understanding identity, I think, and, and perhaps peace, double, double beauty there. Sami Shah is also with us. He's a multi-talented writer and comedian, a performer and broadcaster. He used to co-host the ABC Radio Melbourne program for breakfast. He's uh, presented on RN as well and done a series for RN, a couple of different series. He's now working on another one. Uh, his autobiography, I Migrant, was nominated for several awards. You haven't got your book, so I'll do no, it sorry. for you. <laughs> this is his Islamic Republic of Australia that you can get afterwards as well. Welcome them all. So this is a question to start for all of you. Your books came out after a time of, of darkness and pain and struggle. And before we get to simple pleasures, I'm really interested, how is the search for understanding and a communication of what you've experienced and learnt, how is that through writing sustaining or a pleasure to you? Do you want to go first, George? Um, so what's the writing experience like? Yeah, well, is, is the writing experience part of... Um, is that a pleasurable experience because you are, I suppose, working through that time for yourself, finding mm. the lightness within that and then mm. sharing that with others? Yeah, like, um, I do find writing a very peaceful, like, just um, exercise in the sense of just getting completely absorbed in something. I really love that. I really love the stillness. And, like, it, when I finished writing Victoria, I really missed it because I was occupying a whole nother century, a whole nother, you know, land in my head every single day in which I kind of walked in and dreamt in, and I kind of really missed that. For, for phosphorescence... Um, there's a bunch of things I've been thinking for like a bunch of years when I had to finally pull it together and actually, um, 
yeah, do, do a lot of writing. I was recovering from surgery. So I was in a lot of pain and I was feeling really sad. And sometimes like some of the, <laughs> some of the passengers were a bit buoyant and I was like, oh, you know, like I'm actually not feeling like that today. And I um, just wanted to be really honest about that. So for, I was watching Nashville as well. I was streaming that. <laughs> I got through every se season, it was huge. Um, and in between Nashville, I would sit down, I would just have a, an, an hour or an hour or two a day and I would write this. And it was such a great thing because it just took me out of where I was. You know, I'd be thinking about astronauts um, and I'd be trying to work out why it is so amazing to stand out under, you know, um, next to trees, which stretch up into the sky and why feeling so small under the stars is such a beautiful thing and thinking about friendship and so that was a really wonderful thing to do actually to have those pockets of stillness in my day where I could sit and write that. Editing is different like <laughs> the, the footnotes is grueling yeah. but the actual writing I don't know if you find that too I just find it yeah I find it very kind of absorbing and lovely. Mm. Christy what about fear? Uh, writing in general is it's the thing that I do to, st I, I, I have a, um, a lot of anxiety and depression in my life and writing has always been the thing that I do that if I, if I do that for a couple of days and it's going well, it's the calm place. It's the calm centre yes. of my life. Mm -hmm. If I'm not writing and if I haven't written for a few weeks, I will find myself winding up being really anxious, um, finding, you know, really hard to, to find those moments of joy in the day. But when I'm actually writing, it's like, it's kind of like a meditation yes. where if you do it for the whole day, it just focuses you down into one thing. You have to think about it and it really kind of grounds you and centers you. Um, and the difference between writing fiction, which is, which does that a lot to me and this particular book, which is memoir, was really interesting because it's about my family. And I don't know if anyone else, probably nobody else has the experience of going to visit their family and it winds them up and it's um, a really quite a challenge. <laughs> no one else in the world has that no, experience. No, that's very unique. Yeah, that's so unique. <laughs> but for me, that's what visiting family is like. Um, but visiting family with the idea that you're going to write about them actually changes your relationship to them. Because, you know, <laughs> you, you have the power. You, well, you go visit them and they're doing something absolutely insane. Like my aunt gets a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder out and starts, you know, playing music of like a saw going. And normally I would be like, <laughs> you know, but when you're writing about them, you're like, that's gold. <laughs> it's like, do more crazy things. <laughs> so the Going soundtrack the to your book is The Saw and Julia's is country music of Nashville. Nashville. That's quite, quite yeah, a contrast. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Sammy, what about um, for you? There's a really great Neil Gaiman line I always think about. Neil Gaiman wrote a story about, um, featuring a writer talking about the process of writing. And in that, the writer says that how... What it is to be a writer is you're always slightly disconnected from what you're experiencing, which means, you know, the character says, when I was in love, a part of my brain was thinking, remember this feeling so you know how to write about love. When my child died, a part of my brain was thinking, remember this grief so you know how to write about grief. And, and I genuinely feel that's been a part of my experience for the last, definitely for the last few years since I started writing very seriously. Um, uh, the last year, for example, was the pandemic. I was in Melbourne. We were in lockdown for all those months and, and I had a lot of like personal tragedies and traumas happen at the same time. And, and part of it was dealing with that, but the other part of it was my brain going, 
how can you use this as content? Which sounds like the most ridiculous and sociopathic <laughs> thing, but yeah. writers aren't well-adjusted people. And, and, <laughs> and it's very true, like it was this thing of like, okay, or how do I turn this into a comedy show? Or how do I turn this into a short story? And then how my character can now talk about grief because I've experienced grief, or my character can talk about boredom because I've had seven months of lockdown yeah. and, and it's, it just becomes a very different thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So there's that sort of disconnection from what's going on but then when you're in the writing and you're in that flow, do you get that as well like Chrissy was saying that it's this sort of flow and it's almost like, you know, there's a beauty and a pleasure in that? De I mean, definitely, look, there's also the frustration when you're writing of yeah. things like what's the next wor word that follows this one and, and I'll put too many adverbs in and things like that. But at the same time, yeah, when you're writing true enough, you have that moment where you're going, okay, that emotion sings true and, and it feels honest and, and it only comes from experience, I feel. Mm. I was talking yeah. to Alistair McCall-Smith who writes like about four books a year once and he said to me, he just enters this altered state of consciousness sometimes yeah. Yeah. and it's like he's not, it's not coming, he's not doing it, yeah. it's almost coming it's through. It's automatic him. writing, yeah. yeah, I get that too. Yeah, yeah, I really felt that for phosphorescence because I, was, I couldn't even have a name for it initially, what it was I was trying to say, do you know what I mean? Like, it was almost like, like roots kind of pushing through earth. I was like, and I'd have to go into that flow thinking I'm trying to say something about resilience or about beauty or and then it wasn't until I kind of latched onto the title of phosphorescence that I realized it was it was that it was about everything going dark and what are the things that help you mm. stay light or stay afloat but yeah I, for my other books no like because you are in another land and you are like very focused and absorbed and you can get in a flow but there's something about probably doing more personal mm -hmm. you know memoirish things that that I don't know like you almost go slightly subterranean mm. yeah definitely. you would know because you've been planting mushrooms I have been planting mushrooms about. and yes I, it, I think it does I actually think uh, um, growing mushrooms at home I actually think that it is a similar process to writing because it's all this stuff that's happening underground and in fact when you're not thinking about the book is when you're doing your best writing sometimes because you've put the book away and your subconscious is actually working on the book for you and then when you come back to it you're like oh it's there I didn't know what to do and now two days later my subconscious has just been working and but it's sorted it. My subconscious never does my footnotes. Oh no, no, no. Like, <laughs> gone. Your subconscious is like, do not do footnotes. <laughs> don't do them. That is a simple pleasure though, isn't it, that we often don't have time for, that tapping in to our subconscious, yeah. I think. And there's, there's a, a real quest for understanding, I think, in all of your books, which um, make them, you know, grapple with huge complexities. And I wonder if that grappling does release you, though, to then find sustenance in simplicity, dealing mm. with the complex of, of the life that you live and, and the connection you have with others. Does that then release you, I suppose, when you've worked through it, to find simple beauties? Mm. Yes. Well, in my case, I was, it kind of was all very simple in, in some senses, the kind of the, the places that you arrive at. And I was trying to ask questions like, okay, so why is it that ocean swimming and seeing these incredible strange creatures and the cuttlefish are back in the bay at the moment, why does that give me this incredible lift? And it's more than just getting me out of bed and it's more than just exercise and seeing people. There's something about 
wonder and there's something about awe and there's something about being on the fringes of a really vast ocean. So I go, what is it? And then you, you know, like it's something magical. But then you go through science and scientists are all trying to grapple with this. And so for them to look at awe, they have, they have these like um, experiments about putting people next to a T-Rex and getting them to sign their names, and then people not next to the T-Rex. And so the people who were standing, who were dwarfed by something, wrote their names a little bit smaller. The people that went and sat next to, went through um, groves of huge Californian redwoods, afterwards were more likely to help someone as they were picking up their pen. They're trying to, like, replicate what it's like to go into space. Now, these are all tiny ways of trying to pick up what awe is, right? Um, now they're measuring it through goosebumps on the flesh. And, the, and then you go, well, hang on a minute. Scientists are looking at it in all these kind of understandable but also weirdly awkward ways. I mean, it makes sense once a body of research pulls up. But then this is ancient wisdom as well. And this is something First Nations people have been telling us for a very long time and doing for a very long time when it comes mm. to listening to country and mm. and kind of dissolving your ego and all those kinds of things so um totally forgotten your question yeah but well, like, this is but the thing so you you're, you're dealing with complexities so, yeah but it's about finding the small details in things that has a simple pleasure and a beauty yeah and i think that's what i was trying to say like that is a small that is a small pleasure and why like to sit on a hill and just see extraordinary stars. Why is that such a balm for the spirit? Like, why? And so you can go off through, you know, through science and through philosophers and, um, and um, talk to indigenous people and then, and then come back at the same, at the same point. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what writers do. They pay incredible attention to detail. Mm. So, Chrissy, because you love reading about science as well. Mm. Yeah. So what is it about this contrast between the awe and the massiveness of existence and the T-Rex and, and, and knowledge of science that when bringing it down to that detail, there's a beautiful simplicity in that for you? There's, it, there's kind of two things going on, I think, for me. So when I'm, when I'm writing, it's the idea of this incredible complexity. Life is so messy mm. and it's so complex, but writing fixes it into a story and makes you able to like, make sense of it, remember it. it. It has a pattern then that you have fixed, which means that it's not quite as um, messy and chaotic and you don't feel as lost in it. So that's what writing does, is to make that complexity into story, which is what Indigenous peoples have done forever because um, story is um, not just about a pleasant tale. Story is maps, mapping. Story is history making. So the story, you know, you can, you can make a story and about... Um, birds and that is an entire encyclopedia of birds and it's easy to remember because it's a story and you can remember those birds because they turn up in a story so that's one thing is making it easy enough to understand the world but I actually do the opposite for my own personal detox which is to kind of I, I love reading about the universe I love reading about quantum um, physics because it makes it it blows up that story <laughs> you know when you're reading about quantum physics everything that seems you know like a, a really ha a story that's tangible and you can hang on to it's all blown up so basically what it does to think about the universe in its entirety and how big it is and how impossibly small we are and insignificant is it dissolves the idea of the I and the ego and so if you think about it in that terms you are nothing in your tiny, tiny blink, a tiny grain of sand on that beach. 
And if you're thinking about the whole beach, anything that happens to you, whatever slight someone did to you, the stupid gaffe you made in, you know, yesterday's presentation, it doesn't yeah. matter. Mm -hmm. It's just dumb yeah. because it's the beach and this is just like a tiny little pip on that grain of sand. And that idea of getting rid of the self is what science does to me. And I suppose some people do it through religion, but mm -hmm. I don't have religion. So mm -hmm. science is that thing that gives me a sense of something bigger and other and that I'm not important, which is a good thing. Yes, I think that was such a revelation to me is, is in, in writing this book was just how imp psychologically important it is to be small. Yes. I think so many of us spend so many days feeling inadequate and not up to the task and um, just trying to muddle through in it on every plane that there is. And so we give ourselves pep talks and we do try to occupy space and we do try to have authority and professionally that's all important. But it hadn't really, hadn't really struck me until I spent time in kind of all that literature and all those beautiful natural places thinking it is the most important thing to realise we are those grains of sand yep. and we only have each other yeah and we and this earth is very fragile yes like so astronauts come back and talk about putting the you know um the earth behind their thumb as well um and and again it's a a lot of indigenous people have said the same thing to me about smallness i think it's really important listening yeah. is to get rid Yes. Sam, what about, so I'm interested for you, Sammy, does, do you find a pleasure in knowing you are just a grain of sand in the universe? <laughs> I think it's interesting because I also feel like, uh, and this is, you know, my whole life I was defined as, uh, well, not my whole life, but when I came to Australia, I was always defined as someone from Pakistan, and, and there's a certain history that comes with that and a certain kind of political, social um, uh, knowledge that, and context. And now I feel like after the last year, I'm very much defined as someone from Melbourne. Because we spent seven months soul-searching. Four million people soul-searched simultaneously. And one of the things you actually find, and it's not... I realize that because I've been to Sydney a couple of times since lockdown ended. People in Sydney don't know how to talk to people from Melbourne. No. We have no all. idea. You have no, no idea. You have no clue because no. I, you, like, you'll come up to us like we're from the war. You know, like, yeah. how was the front? Like, it's that kind of a conversation. <laughs> and, and also, we don't know how to articulate it at all. Um, it is a very strange thing. A whole city went into lockdown for a hundred and something days, and everyone simultaneously had the same mental breakdown, same development, same optimism, pessimism, everything, um, in a shared cultural experience. And one of those things we all went through, literally four million people went through, was that realization that we're powerless, that the only thing that matters on a day-to-day -day basis is what Daniel Andrews says and which jacket he's wearing when he's saying it. <laughs> and nothing else important. I thought you were going to say the love we had for each other, but yeah. no, it was Daniel it was, Andrews' no, jacket. No, like, it was even... I remember there were periods where, like, I, I... And not just myself, all my friends, all of us, had blocked anyone from Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide yeah. on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and, and it was this thing where, like, people from t Sydney would say, send messages on social media, which were lovely and well-intentioned, going... Melbourne, we're with you. What can we do? And, and everyone in Melbourne is like, shut up. Shut up. I, just, I, don't, I hate you right now. I don't want, because we genuinely had this thing of like, we don't matter. We, our existence is... And we've seen that after lockdown ended. I know so many people, myself included, who've questioned, okay, what am I doing with my mm -hmm. life now? You know, after this, this has shown me how... Um, illusory everything is and also how um, temporary everything is. So what decisions am I making going forward? 
I know people who've left marriages. I know people who've changed their careers, who've left their entire lifelong careers and done something else entirely. Um, people who've upped and moved and, and done all kinds of strange things. And I think it's because everyone had that realization simultaneously of, I don't matter. And if I don't matter, I can do anything. And the only thing that matters to me is what makes me happy now. Because tomorrow I might be unhappy again for a very long period of time. And I genuinely think as a city, people don't understand what a unique experience Melbourne has had. Yeah, um, really there are other parts of the world, I'm sure, that have had the same thing. Oh, and well, you know, yeah. even, even worse. Yeah, and, and we may not be here tomorrow. And I think we, we've, And we're lucky you know, in COVID's... that we got through it without yeah. the, the death tolls that are happening right now in India mm. and everything. But overall, it's that, that realization that you're talking about is so profoundly a Melbourne one these days that I don't think people outside Melbourne can understand just how we've, you know, we, we, we found ourselves and then we were stuck with ourselves for seven more months. And that was yeah, hard. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Melbourne. And I'm sorry we, you had to tell us to shut up, but I totally understand it. <laughs> so, so these are all big things. People are making big decisions about their life. Mm. They're reassessing because they've realised so much about um, a lot of people how precious bought, it is. Um, a lot of people have bought poodles. So that <laughs> yeah. seems to be the prominent decision they all want to make in their yeah. life is buying a poodle. <laughs> But what about, um, what's the role then within that sort of huge, making big, those big decisions about life? What is the role of a simple pleasure for you? And how do you get, how did you snatch those simple pleasures in life through that time? And what have you carried through with that time about focusing on those simple pleasures, such as a beautiful cup of tea or whatever it is? For me, it genuinely came down to writing, work. Mm. I'm a writer professionally, and writing is what I do as a, you know, to pay my bills. And I always thought of it as a mercenary act. You know, it's something I do to pay the bills. I enjoy doing it, but I need to keep doing it to pay bills. And then during lockdown, um, so many people lost their work, so many people lost their jobs. Um, and I was lucky in that I kept getting writing work. But I, I didn't need to do it, but I found that doing it was that escapism. You know when, when you're in the flow of writing and you, and you stop thinking of the world around you and it dissolves completely and the only thing that matters is the language you're using and the, and the way you're structuring your story and, and is this character's arc you know, true to their person and, and all of these things. And, and for me, it's, it sounds like it's not a simple pleasure, but it really genuinely is, which is just every day being able to sit down and write whenever, wherever I was. Like, I used to always have a computer, and I wrote in a computer because that's the way I felt writing should be done. And now I have a notebook and a pen, and I'll write. Yesterday I wrote at a bar waiting for a before comedy show, and I just write anywhere, everywhere, all the time now. And some of that writing sells, and some of that writing never does, and that's fine. But I get to write. That doesn't and matter to you, it's the process. The, exactly, right. and, and okay. the joy I can take from that now is something I really value more than I ever have before. Mm. We, I mean, we've, we've talked about the writing right at the beginning. So, um, you know, and Julia, you've talked about awe and we've talked about the details of, of seeing things. What about ritual in our lives? And the sort of simple pleasure, I think, in having that as those simple rituals. Chrissy, you talk in your book about 
cooking for people and yeah. the beautiful things about creating a feast and, and, and feeding people a ritual of showing love. What are those rituals for you that are simple pleasures? I, I think that the, that idea of cooking and sharing um, is, is really important for me and for a lot of people. I think that's a way of gathering and that's, that's from my grandmother. That's from my grandmother who could only show love. She didn't hug or kiss or touch or say nice things to you or tell you you were okay um, ever. And so the only way you knew that she loved you was that she baked bread and cooked the meal and, um, you know, she kind of gave it to you and if you didn't eat it, you didn't love her. That was the kind of trade-off that you had. It's reciprocal showing love. So I kind of have inherited that in a way. I don't have the same, you must eat this or you're not my friend, um, that my grandmother did. But I do have this thing of gathering a lot of people together around a table and cooking for them. But I also have the simple rituals. And I think doing this book, I had to go over to Slovenia and also to Egypt to research this book, which is about the family history. And turning up in Slovenia, I'm not a good traveller. I'm quite a nervous traveller. And what you do, what I do when I go to a place is I go around, I find a place I'm going to have coffee. I kind of go, okay, where where is the best place to have coffee? Where do I feel safe? I do that, yeah. The place that I'm, a bookshop? I find a bookshop, even if it's mm. not in the language that I speak. It's like, this is a bookshop. I'm going to go there and look at the books. Um, and then I find um, the place I'm going to write, which is often a cafe or it's a little nook that I, with a table that I can sit and write. And once I've done that, those three things, I feel like, okay, I've got my space and this is my bubble and now I, I can do all the scary things like go to try and talk to people, try and get on a train and not know how, how to read the language or speak to people. But it's those three things. And I do it in Sydney too. I'm like, you know, I've, I'm staying here and the coffee shop that I normally go to when I come to Sydney Rice Vegetable is gone. I think maybe COVID got rid of it. And I'm like, oh no, I haven't got the cafe that I go to. It's like, I still feel like I haven't quite got here after three days because I haven't found that cafe. And it's like, those are the things that are important to me. Yeah. What are the rituals that ground you, Julia? Um, Gosh, I mean, we're mainly ocean swimming, I think. Um, I was thinking about the, the Melbourne situation. Like, after my surgery, I was home for exactly that period of time. And when you're recovering from an intense, for like a seven-month period, when you're recovering from intense surgery and you're in that kind of pain, you are really longing for a day without pain. And you're also longing to enjoy simple pleasures again. Like I couldn't drink tea. I love tea so much and I drink a lot of tea. And the moment I got to where I could have a cup of tea and like it again was like so great. Like it's so much, that is such a simple pleasure for me, as is a bath. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I have a bath now. I haven't had a bath for so many years and it is one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life. I love it so much and, um, and I relish it so much. Um, but when I could get back into the ocean and swim again, um, it's almost like a thing I do, like it's not even so much for physical health or mental health. There's another category now, which is about like awe and, and wonder that, that I, I do because I know that's what keeps me sane and alive. So definitely, definitely um, the ocean swimming. There's something like, it's like swimming through an aquarium at the moment and there's something new and beautiful every day that you've never seen before. Yeah, I, it's like people you talk to about ocean swimming, it's like a cult. <laughs> Are you, anyone in here a member of this cult? Because yeah, people that do it, <laughs> they're just like, 
you go, I want what they're having. Yeah. I want to join that cult, and yes, it's a pretty it's good cult yes. too, yeah, if it was one. Um, what about beauty and imperfection and that simple pleasure of, I suppose, seeing the imperfection in things and valuing that and finding beauty in that? You talk about that a lot in phosphorescence. Yeah, I think like you need to cast that eye on other people the same and, and on, your, on yourself as well. You know, and it's just more like, it's more like casting a kinder eye. It's so weird the way we, you know, taught to strive towards some kind of perfection now. I'm watching what women particularly are, are supposed to do with their themselves and their bodies and how weird everyone ends up looking in the pursuit of like, what is it? It's not, it's not perfection. Um, but I, I, I think I was writing that in response to a lot of the relentlessness about how we have to be doing everything at all times or in even happy at all times. And I really wanted to write this, not so that people would be like, oh, you know, I'm going to go through a great grief or illness or cancer or something horrible. And then not only do I need to survive, I need to sparkle. You know, I was like, no, I don't want people to kind of, to, to be thinking about that. And, um, or to, to think that there's anything more important than just actually getting through, getting through a day and surviving through a day. So it was a reaction to that. And also because my mother um, just taught me so much about like just accepting yourself and always seeing the best in other people. And I think when you see the best in other people, people are more likely to kind of to become that. Do you understand? So if, so if, I, so if you see the best, you, you also accept that imperfection. I don't know why we punish ourselves so much. Yeah, I think that's really true. And talking about sparkle, Chrissy's bought the sparkle today. Is there, is there a pleasure for you in just how you, I suppose, present to the world and... Um, in a, in a world that does, yes, expect and, and put expectations on people and, you know, that whole idea of what... It's just, it's just ridiculous. It's liberating it is, to it escape is, yeah. that. Look, I've, I've never fitted into the world You in say general. that in your book, yeah. And I talk about that a lot in this book as well. And one of the reasons that I don't fit is because I was denied a sense of where I came from. I'm the first generation born in Australia and um, my family, you know, my grandmother particularly didn't want me to know where she was from or her story. And so that idea of not having a story, not having a place that you feel at home in, not having a space that you kind of go, you know, like I, I have a lot of friends um, from Indigenous heritage and they have a really strong sense of this is country, this is home. Mm. Um, and I long for that because I don't have this sense of where I was from. So writing this book was about trying to find that. But in the process of doing that, I also had to deal with the physicality of the body that I'm in in this world, which actually doesn't fit into aeroplane seats or, you know, if you're at a lecture, when the tray table comes, you know, those tables in the lectures, they don't fit across my belly. Um, I don't fit into clothes in a regular shop, so I can't just... Someone will go, let's go shopping. I can't go shopping because I can't fit into anything in a shop. Um, and I think that other people dealing with a body that doesn't conform to the norm always feels like they shouldn't be seen or they shouldn't take up space. And I think writing this book has made me kind of go, no, I need to find a space. I need to just be okay that my body will <laughs> break a fragile chair if I sit in it, and that's okay. It's not my fault. It's the chair's fault. Or, it's, <laughs> you know, it's just not my fault. 
Um, and it's, it, it's not my fault if I don't fit into that, you know, incredibly small portaloo that someone's put there. I'm going to use the disabled toilet because mm. that's, that, that's about accessibility. So this has actually been something that's changed in the writing of this book is just to be, to be okay about myself, my physicality and having a sense of where I came from um, has helped me um, come to terms with my body as well. Yeah. Can I just have a shallow moment, though, and just talk about how awesome this dress is? Oh, yes. yes. Jellyfish. It's got jellyfish all over it. You need to admire it, Arthur. It's, like, so cool. When, when, you, when you come and have your book signed, you yes. can have a better look at it. But yeah, it is. It's phosphorescence on a dress. It it's is. amazing. Uh, Sammy, what, you know, so much of comedy is about laughing at the imperfection in the world, the messiness mm. and in people and um, all our foibles and... and what about laughter? What about the joy and the pleasure of making people laugh? That just must be awesome. Mm. Um, yeah, it's very, very... There is... Um, it, it's an empowering thing because you're genuinely... You know, when, you, when it works and when it goes well, you are genuinely getting hundreds and sometimes thousands of people to laugh simultaneously. You have the same, you're eliciting the same reaction from all these people from something you just said. And so there is that, that aspect of it. But also, it's always very much about finding the flaws in the system, right? That's what comedians are always obsessed with, yeah. is looking at, whenever you look at anything and everyone says, that's great, the comedian's the one going, yeah, but is it? And like, why is it great? And what makes it great? And what if it wasn't great for the reasons you think it's great? And and kind of pulling it apart. And sometimes that can, if you channel that into stand-up comedy, it can be a career, but if you don't, then you're just the awkward guy at the party. And, and it's something I've been very careful about as well. Um, you know, one of those things that I've always kind of struggled with, when I was in Pakistan, I used to criticize things about Pakistan that I thought needed improving, um, and, and people would always get upset about that. And and when I migrated to Australia, I do the same thing here. And, and as an immigrant, you're not allowed to sound ungrateful at all. Um, but uh, it's just part and parcel of who I am. I like pointing out the foibles in things. And it's not because I, I don't like them. It's because I want things to be better always. And why not? Um, but to then use that as comedy is where the fun of it comes into it. You know, mm. like how do you talk about how great things are. Like, the fact that we're right now sitting here in this amazing venue, doing this amazing talk, while the whole world is grappling with the pandemic, yeah. is a wonderful privilege. And how can I now look at this and make fun of it and make everyone feel bad about themselves, is my <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> there is just a beauty in hearing laughter, though, isn't it? Like a child's laugh, an adult's laugh. I, I find that a simple pleasure in Yeah, laugh. absolutely. It's, yeah. The, it's the best feeling. It's a... It's a pure exhalation. It, you, you saw it a lot. Like, when I used to do comedy in Pakistan, uh, usually after, like, a terror attack or something horrific, um, uh, you know, I'd be doing stand-up comedy a few days after, like, a lot of people have died and there's been a terrorist attack. And the laughter that would be elicited by the audience there was very particular. It, was like, it, was, it wasn't just laughter. It was a laugh of relief. That it, was, it was a celebration of being alive and being able to laugh still. Mm. And I've always kind of held on to that. Whereas laughter is more than just, you know, people reacting in surprise. Sometimes it's very much a, a, a celebration of being able to laugh as well. Oh, exactly. That's a really good point. Um, I'm imagining, though, that also for all of you, that people have told you a lot about the pleasure they've got from reading your book, about the impact it's had upon their life, about how it's made them reframe the way they think about things, whether it's about intergenerational trauma or, you know, Islam and 
yeah. And leaving it, right. <laughs> yeah, and leaving it and the big questions or for, for Julia of, um, you know, in, in going through pain. And I wonder if what people have told you and, and how that has given you a real pleasure. What mm. have people said to you about mm. reading your book? And, and you must get a lot of... Yeah, yeah I've, yeah. I've had really beautiful correspondence from people talking to me about just like other ways that it's comforted them or they've given it to other people um, or it's got them to kind of reconnect with the natural world or just to think about some things because it's not meant to be a, this is a guide to <laughs> life or to, you know, to feeling good. It's none of that. It's about ways of thinking about yourself and ways of paying attention to the world um, and, and looking outside yourself when, when things are completely grim. I mean, from funny things. I mean, people have told me about, you know, a lot, a lot of it is like minutiae, like, as I said, kind of paying attention. I've got yeah. a poem in there by Mary Oliver, The Grasshopper, which is eating sugar in her hands, where she talks about what will you do with your one wild and precious life and how attention is like, is like a prayer. So people will often tell me that they've like noticed something a snail is doing or they notice the way a, a, like um, water drops when their daughter dives into a lake and they'd seen something for the for the first time, um, people have told me how they've, how they've given it to strangers um, who they'd heard on the news that were going through kind of rough times and sometimes just let me into their world and I've, I've loved that. And especially because a lot of it's come back to don't take awe and wonder for granted. Don't just think that you'll stumble across them, those things because you will and it's, that's fantastic. But build the pursuit of them into your day and, and wait to see what happens. Mm. Yeah, especially as our world shrunk, yeah. we're paying attention more to those things around us that we'd ignored before. Yeah, is... and it's not about going and doing big spectacular things. Yeah. They're all good, yeah. but it's about your, your own garden yeah. or the park at the end of the street. Yeah. yeah. You had a question? Yes. Hi, uh, Rubina from Brisbane. I just wanted to ask, uh, I get a feel from all three of yourselves that writing is healing, it gives you a sense of yourself, it gets you to simplify the complexity of the world into, but uh, particularly in the memoir genre, but that's perhaps because you've been writing for a while. But how does that work when you're thinking of writing a memoir? You've never written personal things before. Of course, one is a professional and writing is part of all that. And, you know, initially when you struggle with the words and the language and expressing yourself, mm. um, you know, that would be a real struggle initially, wouldn't it, for, for somebody new to, to, to even think of Embarking writing. Embarking on that audacious adventure of writing. Yes. Who would like to answer the Abena's question? The best advice <laughs> I ever got for, on how to write a book. By the way, I'm from Pakistan as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, whereabouts? Uh, well, I was born in India, grew okay. up there, and then we moved to Pakistan. So lived in Karachi first oh, for a number of years, yeah. and uh, then to Islamabad, and then I met my Aussie husband there, and I live in Brisbane. All right. Yeah, so maybe catch up afterwards. Absolutely. Would love that. That's great. Um, although I don't know why anyone would live in Brisbane, but still. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the best advice I ever got on how to finish a book, how to write a book, was uh, there's two steps. Step one is write it, and step two is keep writing until you finish. 
and nothing else works. And it sounds trite. I remember when someone told me that, I got very annoyed. I was like, I need real advice. This is bullshit. Why are you telling me something silly? Mm. But it turned out to mm. be the truth. The only way you write something is by writing. And the only way you finish writing it is by finishing it. And the first draft and the second draft don't have to be seen by anyone else. If you're struggling with the language, put down the bad words. You can make them good words in the third draft. You know, if you're struggling with how it's, what's happening in the story, put down everything. The next draft, you can, f you know, fine-tune it and prune it and cut it and trim it. Um, the only way to write is to write. And that genuinely is the least helpful advice that you can get from a writer, but it is the only worthwhile advice I find the writer can give is just write. Two, two other things to add to that. Yeah. I think you kind of touched on it. Um, write a really bad first draft. Oh, like, yeah. Aim, aim to write a really awful, awful first draft. So if it's really bad on the page, you've succeeded because you can't write a good draft without having a bad draft yeah. there. So that's the first thing that's helped because it gives stop worrying about each sentence or each word. Just make a bad draft. And then also... Um, learn by reading other people's work. So that's the other thing that I think is I never know how mm. to write a book until I've found the book that I wish I had written in that genre. So I'll kind of be searching and searching and searching and I'll keep writing and writing and writing, but I won't be able to finish it until I find that thing that I can read that I go, that's it. I wish I'd written that. So I'm going to mm. write something that's kind of like that. So finding that map. Mm. Yeah, and I'm pretty much exactly the same as these, these guys. I mean, number one thing, I always have to block all of the internet on, off my computer. I just have to block it um, and give myself a period of time where there's absolutely no distractions. But, but I mean, it's exactly, exactly the same advice. And also what I also tell myself, just to sit. I just, that's what's going to happen. If I just sit mm. <laughs> and, and write... It'll happen. There's no other way. There's nothing else that will get this thing done. And I can go for a million walks around the neighborhood and like... No, there's a really good... Uh, Jay Seinfeld has a rule when it comes to writing comedy and stuff, which is he says one hour a day, mm. but in that one hour, he's not allowed to do anything else. No. So if he's not going to write comedy, right. he'll just sit and stare at the wall. Yeah. But he's not allowed to do anything yep. else. And eventually your brain goes, I might as well yeah. write. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That exactly. wall is getting pretty exactly. boring, although I'm paying attention to its exquisite detail. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now we've got questions. Yep. Um, hi. So um, I really enjoyed like what you're saying about simple pleasures. And I was wondering, like, obviously you guys aren't mental health professionals, but if you were going to give advice to people with mental um, health issues about finding the simple pleasures in life, what would you like say to them? Um, microdosing. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I've been reading a lot about mushrooms for a book that I'm writing at the moment. And um, I grow oyster mushrooms and lion's mane, and I love the pleasure of growing mushrooms. And I've been reading a lot about um, just the, the trials, the clinical trials that are happening here and in Melbourne um, about microdosing and how absolutely amazing they are with depression and anxiety and there aren't any trials up in Queensland but I am just like pushing as hard as I can 
to, to join one because it seems that they work and there's no downside. So for me, I, I know that that's, this seems like such a, you know, it's illegal. Don't, don't try this at home, people. But, if you, but in a couple of years, I think it's going to be legal to be able to, to um, actually just treat yourself with something that is such um, a, a useful tool for us. We use mushrooms for, um, for antibiotics. So why can't we use them for um, depression and anxiety? So that, that's actually something that I think um, we should all be pushing for is to um, actually use the natural world in a much more medicinal way. Mm. And the police are outside and yeah. I'll be arrested <laughs> after this session. <laughs> Anyone else got something legal? To <laughs> Did you want to... Well, I mean, it's, you know... Yeah, obviously when there's issues with mental health, there's, there's so many things that you need to think about in terms of support and in terms of talking to the right people and all that kind of stuff. You know, um, I do, and I do think that often when you're in that place or in a dark place and you're trying to find your way forward, that it's hard when simple pleasures aren't pleasures anymore. And, 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 and that's what I was kind of talking about before when I was kind of working my way through that pain and I just... All I wanted to do was to be able to enjoy a cup of tea, and it was so great. I just love tea. But, um, and um, I think the, the sense that also there's, there's so many people that have walked these paths before and have struggled to put one foot in front of the other and to take some strength from that and to also know that by, by looking outwards, by looking at other people and by kind of paying close attention to the world, um, that can provide some relief. And um, I've certainly found, found it providing relief in my circumstances when I kind of like spend time caring for other people when I'm in a, a, a black space, even if I can't get out of my own stuff. Um, I, can, I can try to help someone else out of theirs. So, yeah, and I, I, I repeatedly came back to... So Rachel Carson, who you would know and who's, who was so far ahead of her time and whose writing really kick-started the environmental movement in the US in so many ways with The Silent Spring. And before she wrote that, the end of the 1950s, she wrote, a, wrote an article for, in um, a women's magazine and it was about finding wonder and teaching kids how to find wonder. Now, I have to preface this with, I completely understand that if someone came up to me when I had just had a, my shitty diagnosis or when you've gone through something horrible or you've, you've, you know, a loved one has died or whatever and they're like, just go and lie under a tree, like that would be so annoying, right? It's not about that. It's about cultivating a kind of a mindset um, when, you can, when you can look at the world and, and what you can give it and what it can give you. So when Rachel Carson wrote this thing and she talked about um, taking her little... Um, nephew, I think Roger, like looking through tidal pools at night and through the, the, through the forests and trying to teach him wonder. And she said that if she was, could be a fairy godmother for every child at the moment of their birth, she would wish for them an indestructible sense of wonder that would last throughout their life. And so they wouldn't be distracted by, all, by so many other stuff. And she ends up with this phrase where she says, um, so they will not be alienated from these tremendous sources of strength. And I think that's huge. I think that there's so many things around us in the natural world um, and in each other that we haven't realised can make us strong in ways that we don't, that we don't recognise, and especially when you're on a path to, path to recovery. Mm. 
Was there one more question? Yep. Hi. Thank um, you. So I'm from Hills Grammar, a school from the person before me as well. I'm in year 11 and I got my assessment mark back recently, 33%. Pretty good. And I was just wondering what advice do you have for new writers? New writers? Yeah. Yeah, for mm. you. Um, oh, man, the well, English we, curriculum. We could, I could talk to you about the English curriculum. But. Uh-oh. <laughs> I reckon find your tribe, like find your, yes. find your people. Yes. Um, so actually having a community of writers around you is so um, important because if the people around you are not writing as well, then um, it always feels like you're, doing, you're, you're the outsider. You're not doing the same thing as them. So find other people who really like writing and... Um, you know, talk about writing with them, I reckon. Yeah. And congratulations, by the way, yeah, on your yeah. result and on standing and, and asking us this question. And you obviously have a compulsion to write. So it's about honouring that and giving that time, you know, and allowing that, you know, space in your life. I reckon when I um, was younger, I, I kept thinking I had to get to a point of like really good experience before I should be writing or, or sharing the tawdry stuff in my diet. Not tawdry, that's the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. Staring the filthy of the content of my own journals in there. No, um, I, I, I think I was shy and I kept thinking um, I, I was reading so much and I was reading so much that was so beautiful and perfect and that I kept thinking I'm such a long way behind it. No, who says it? Neil Gaiman says something like that. Like we'll always be beating ourselves up about not being perfect enough. Don't wait to be... To, to think that you've, you're going to say everything in exactly the way you want. Just start to speak and honour that voice and, and it will come. And, um, yeah, I think, I, think, I, think that's, I think that's a profound thing. I think read as much as you can. Yeah. But it's one of the, like, there's a Stephen King thing in, on writing where he says you can't be a writer unless you're a reader. And it's true, like, just read as much as you can all the time. Um, read books, read articles, read comics, read whatever you like reading. Mm-hmm. Don't ever let anyone else tell you what you're reading is not good. Yeah. If you like reading it, it is good for you. And read it. Read the hell out of it. Um, mm, yeah. and, and when you're done reading something you like, find more things that you might not like and then discover whether you like them or not. And eventually that will make its way into your writing. Yeah, yeah. and you, won't, you won't, won't write like anyone else. You don't have to write like anyone else. It'll be, yeah. it'll be your voice. Mm. So good luck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, good luck. Thank you very much. Big year next year. I think that's uh, a comment that we could probably give to the question before too, apart from my flippant, just take magic mushrooms. That wasn't flippant. Um, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't flippant. Um, is like the, the, uh, the answers to questions about your own mental health are in other people's books. And I think mm. that, I think that the, all three of of our books have some answers to how we've dealt with our own kind of anxieties and and problems that have have haunted us and how we've got through it. And I think you need to find those friends that in those books Mm. that have dealt with the same things you're going through. Isn't that lovely? Friends in books. I think that's so true. That's why we're all here today, isn't it? There are totally friends in books. And that's the greatest simple pleasure of all reading. We've got a couple more minutes. I just want to ask, this is a terrible question to ask you, Uh but just when Chrissy just said, you know, the bush, the book you read, lots of books about what you're doing and, and, and read the book you wish you'd written. It's a hard question, but what, give, can you give us an example of a book you wish you'd written that you really just had an, such pleasure in reading that you thought, damn, I wish I'd written this? 
Is that too hard a question? Oh, there's so many. There's probably so many, but just just one. I think I've got got one. Um, There's a book called Bluettes by Maggie Nelson. And a lot of people um, rate her book, The Argonauts, which um, was really popular, and that's through text publishing. Um, But I'm a massive fan of her book, Bluettes, which is a memoir, but it's a memoir in a verse novel. So it's like a long poem. It's really short. You can read it in a day. But um, she starts out in poetry form to write a verse, a, a novel in verse about the colour blue. And during her gathering of all this information of facts about blue, her relationship breaks down. Uh-huh. And so it becomes about this kind of idea of getting the blues from a relationship breakdown. And this thing that starts off as a fact-gathering non-fiction book becomes this beautiful, beautiful treatise on what relationships are and what it's like to lose someone important to you. And I read that, and I can read it in a couple of hours, and I sit there and go, that's a perfect book, and I wish I'd written that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's called Bluettes, and it's by Maggie Nelson. Um, I just finished reading uh, for the second time, actually. Um, it's a novella called How to Win the Time War. Uh, and it's by Mona El-Tawahi, who mm-hmm. writes for the New York Times. Um, and it's, an, it's just, it's a short story. It's, it's, an, it's a novella, really, but it's basically, it's a love story between two people on opposite ends of a war taking place through time. It's a science fiction fantasy kind of book, but it's not about that. It's about... Um, communication and how we communicate with one another when our languages don't meet. And it is one of those books where halfway through, I was just jealous of the sheer imagination involved. And by the time I finished it, I knew I had to read it again just to appreciate the turns of phrase and the, and the way each, each sentence is kind of crafted because I was like, that's a skill that I aspire towards yeah. and I wish I could somehow write at that level. Um, it, it was, it's a beautiful book. I yeah. love finding out what other writers are reading. Have you got one, Jules, before we finish? Harry Potter would have Harry been Potter. great for the um, income stream. No. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh, there's just so <laughs> many you're in a castle. That I like Lucia Berlin's and her capacity to tell her short stories. She's oh, yeah. so amazing. Have yeah, you read her? Yeah. She's just brilliant. Um, and so undiscovered. And um, anything Helen Garner's ever done. Um, I got quite d- depressed during Victoria by the woman called Stacey Schiff and I bought a lot of her biographies and I would open them and they just couldn't read anymore because they were too good. Too good. Yeah, she's really they, they were too annoying. Yeah, I still haven't even finished it. It was too much. <laughs> she was too good. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's funny because I was asked, I'm going to switch just slightly because Booktopia asked me recently what is the most the book that's influenced your life the most and I could not think of an, I just, you know, on the spot, it's just you're hopeless. And then I suddenly realised during the week that there was a book called Babiyar that was written by about kind of atrocities at the end of the Second World War um, and a con- concentration camp on the Soviet border. And I read that in year 12 and I reckon that, that like, I just remember sobbing over that book and it made me determined to study history for the rest of my life and to write for the rest of my life. And just everything was contained in it. The idiocy of mankind, the people who kind of fought against and tried to, tried to get out of that, the kind of just the shockingness of history, not learning and things repeating themselves. And anyway, it just completely captured me. I've just kind of reordered it again. So maybe, wow. maybe that book, but then, but then, I wouldn't have been able to read it myself. 
and haven't had it change my life. So maybe I don't wish I'd written that after all. I'll go back to Harry Potter. Okay, <laughs> Harry Potter. She wishes she'd written Harry Potter. You'd be very rich. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be very wet. She said, JK Rowling of the moment, though, 160,000 copies. Thank you so much to Julia Baird, Chrissy Neen, and Sammy Shah. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.